and welcome to Broadway Radios. This week on Broadway for Sunday, January 14, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Jenna Tessa Fox and Michael Portantier. Jenna is a theater writer and reviewer whose articles have appeared online at Time Out New York, Playbill.com, Broadway World, and NewYorkTheaterGuide.com. Good morning, Jenna. Good morning, James. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and SCST is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. Peter is traveling. I think he's in Atlanta or something like that right now. Uh, Someplace warm. Someplace (laughs) warm. Exactly. The cold has come back. Uh, but he will have uh, trivia, thanks to Matt Tamanini. Uh Matt has uh, recorded the trivia for us, and we'll get to that at the end of the broadcast. With us this morning, we have a very special guest. Francis Ruffell is joining us by telephone from the UK. Francis, where are you right now? Are you in London or just uh, vacationing? Or <laughs> yeah, I live in New York these days, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm on a vacation to London um, right now today, just for a few days to see my family. Well, you do live in New York because the name of your show is Lives in New York. Francis <laughs> Raphael lives in New York. Yes. And, and you're going to be... Live uh, or yeah. lives. <laughs> you're going to be at the Green Room 42 on Thursday, February 1st at 7.30 p.m. We thought we would chat a little bit about that to let everybody know that... Um, that you yeah. are here in New York and doing this, doing this show, and uh, Broadway fans know you from your your one time appearance on Broadway in Les Misérables, <laughs> where yeah. you just you appeared in Les Mis and you won the Tony and you walked away and we haven't seen you on a Broadway stage since. Why is that? <laughs> You've no, been so busy um, because because I. I had a really much more important production um, after Les Mis, and that was the production of my daughter, Eliza, uh-huh. um, who I actually pregnant with when I was uh, performing as Eponine. And so, you know, I, I thought I'd better go home to my family, uh-huh. and um, I ended up having children. I've got three amazing children who have all grown up. And I always intended to come back to New York and hopefully be on Broadway again and just time goes by and you know the children um you know needing to go to school and everything i just stayed in london and and worked in london instead but i always knew i had to come back and i've waited 30 years which is kind of ridiculous actually (laughs) but they're all grown up now and um i've still got a bit of energy left and you know i decided i'm gonna go for a, a change of life so here i am basically so you uh uh did you pass on the theater genes to your children Really, no. Um, um, I passed on the singing gene um, to my daughter, Eliza, who's got an incredible voice and um, much better than mine, of course. And um, she's um, she's on on her third album. She's a singer-songwriter. She's had platinum albums. She's actually wow. um, also her... Um, she's had hits in uh, the States as well. Um, and she, she wrote a song. She penned a song for them called uh, You and Me, and it's been a big hit all over um, America. And she was playing with them at Madison Square Garden. And so um, I hope her new album will come out in the States. Well, it will come out everywhere, but hopefully you'll like it there as well. I keep saying there because I'm sitting here in in London, but I'm homeless in London. I've got my home in New York. <laughs> 
I'm staying with my mum and dad. <laughs> Back with my mum and dad. Um, uh, do you ever get a chance to uh, perform or sing with your daughter? Um, I used to um, when she was young and she liked the idea, but now she's older, she can't bear the thought of singing with me. <laughs> um, hopefully should, it's just a phase. Um, but no, we don't really do this little Judy Liza numbers. Really, it was a shame. It would be fun, but you know, I, I I don't think she thinks I'm cool enough. But she's wrong, she's very wrong. <laughs> so tell us about your upcoming show. What, what can we expect to see? Um, well, my shows. Um, whenever I do my one woman shows um, about cabaret, and I I call cabaret the C word, if you know what I mean, um, because I don't really. It started with I didn't really want to stand there and talk to the audience because I felt nervous about talking to the audience. That wasn't really my thing, being myself and talking and not sort of hiding under a character. So um, I I decided to create a show um, that was a story and a song cycle. And that was my first show called Beneath the Dress. And since then, I've written um, three shows. This is my third one. And... um, there's a story, basically, um, at first I think we think they're going to be seeing just a regular cabaret, but then they realise actually you've got to listen because every word takes you on this um, it, on this story. And it's a story um, that a lot of, I say a lot of women um, understand, but actually a lot of men do too, but it, it tends to be the women that come up to me asking, oh, I know how you feel, love. You know? um, and it's, it's basically, um, it started, you know, being created by my own, my own life and my heartbreaks, my, um, you know, love, loss, but then empowerment, you know, finding confidence and, and, and empowering myself. And, um, and so the story, um, the story to true, but, um, I don't speak to the audience in the way I'm speaking to you right now. Um, it's all, very, it's all scripted and written and it's like, um, little vignettes in, in between the songs and the songs take you further as well. And some of the lyrics are my own lyrics that I've written, and and it, and I don't mean I don't want to spoil it, but uh-huh. but it's um it's 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 interesting, you know. It, it grips you, it grips you because you want to know you know what's happening next. It's not just oh I'm going to sing this next song from a show I uh, was in, but I do sing that famous song that people expect. So don't worry, it is there. <laughs> uh, so uh, we were listening to your. Uh... Your album, I Say Yay Yay, um, and um, you have quite a number of uh, French songs in there, and people might confuse you as being yeah. French, you know, having done Les Miserables mm-hmm. and uh, having some French songs and things like that. What is your affinity for the French? Yeah. Well, it is true. Um, people do think I'm French with my name as well, and Francis Ruffel, and um, basically... Uh, when I was younger, I had this. There was this um, TV show called Bell and Sebastian, and the theme tune was in French. And I used to sort of write it, write it down in phonetics. I was about ten years old. And that was my first sort of attempt in singing in French. And then Trevor Nunn, who um, directed um, Starlight Express and co-directed Les Misérables, um, when I was in Starlight, he wanted me to play Eponine and Les Mis, and he he asked me to come and sing for the French composers. He said, we need to persuade them that you're right for the show because I really want you to play Eponine. Um, Will you sing an Edith Piaf song? So there I suddenly sort of 
um, discovered the, the work of Edith Piaf and her French songs. So I started teaching myself the French songs from her life. And then just people thinking I'm French, you know, I had a show written for me where I played a French cabaret star called Angelique and I had to sing French in that. And it just keeps kept going. Then I did play Edith Piaf as well in a play. And I had, I thought I've worked so hard with all this French. I've got to put it on an album. So um, my last album is half French, half English. I have a question. Uh, the press release for your show, your upcoming show says that you, played Queenie in the yes. UK in the UK premiere of Michael mm. John LeCuse's infamous The Wild Party. I'm wondering about the yeah. inf- the infamous part if you could address that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what they well, I don't know I, I didn't write that. <laughs> I love I mean I love I love his I love his wild party. Yeah, and it's crazy and dark and naughty and gritty and and um I love the sort of jazz opera style of the piece. And um I hope I get to do it again. I'd love to do it again in New York. You know, it's been a highlight of my career in London. I love absolutely loved it. What was the best part of the production for you? Um well, I think the production itself was so beautiful. It was done almost like a ballet. It moved all the time. And, um, and the choreography was um, award-winning Drew McConey. And so for me as well, playing the part of Queenie, which is really quite, well, it's apart from being a, a big role and demanding role, it's um, quite a difficult role to get across as well because she, I mean, she just, you know, like a lot of people who go into the theatre just want to be a big star you know, and her life hasn't turned out how she would really like it. And she, she comes across like a dark, um, sort of um, uncaring character. And, and that's really difficult to play sometimes with um, an audience because, you know, the, it, they've got to care about characters. They've got to care, even if you're a villain. I, I, I still feel that it'd be, it's great to get something across that the audience identify with. So that was a challenge for me. And I hopefully I did it. I Hopefully I did it well. <laughs> Um, but um, the actual production, and it, it, I love the music so much. I'm, I'd never seen a production of it before, but I'd heard the music, and and it's really challenging music as well. So for me, it, this sounds a bit weird, but it was like a jazz opera ballet, and it was just so beautifully directed. So I'd love to do it again. Plus, I get to dance, which I, I don't often get a chance to do. <laughs> that wild party was just uh, about one year ago. Uh, or so was that correct? Yeah. Um, yeah, we finished um, April um, last year, so and we started it. We were in rehearsals a year ago. Did you get a chance to record it? Yes, it's filmed. It's completely filmed with oh, four wow. cameras, beautifully filmed. Um, but I don't Wonderful. know if that will ever come out. Or um, it's um, more. I think it's, you know, to to try and organize, maybe getting another production on or or eventually maybe it will get sold to um, a TV company or something. It, it's absolutely beautiful. I hope the world gets to see it. Wow, I didn't realize it was because, uh, you know, so many people don't get to see The Wild Party. It'd be great for it to be released, especially yeah, for really. a first-rate production of it. Yeah. Oh, so... Um, yeah, I mean, I guess... Um, I guess something will happen with it at some point, yeah. One of my guilty pleasures in life is Starlight Express. 
Uh, and I actually got a chance yeah. <laughs> to uh, see London production and see a special Dinah. So tell us about uh, your experience with Starlight. What was it? What was it like? Uh, you know, developing that show, and was it just madness yeah. all around? Oh yeah, it was complete. It was crazy. I mean, I don't know what they were thinking. Really, putting us all on roller skates and on on steep bowls. You actually saw the theatre in London, did you? Yeah. Because it was really that. quite a, a roller coaster, really. You know, yeah. I don't know how we did it. I still have nightmares that they're going to call me up and say, "We need a diner tomorrow. Can you get your skates on?" <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, I was young. I was seventeen when we did the workshop for it, and that was fantastic. You know, um, and to be honest, I auditioned for it, and um, and then. Before I left the room, Andrew Lloyd Webber said to me, you've, you've got the job. And I walked out of the, the room and I, I almost got knocked down by a truck because I was just so sort of gobsmacked. Um, and then um, actually, um, I didn't even know what I was saying. I know I thought I was just in the ensemble or something. I had not a clue until the first day of rehearsal that I was playing Dinah, which was quite an amazing part. So I'm uh, really, really lucky started my life like that um it was really hard work and um actually i'm surprised i didn't injure myself more because i was the worst skater in the whole piece um i was the first one to, to try the the bowls they they took me along and i was thinking oh they must think i'm amazing but it turned out they they thought if, if francis can do it anyone can do it so um and and, and uh and I did fall down the first time I went down the bowl, and I just, it's so embarrassing. When you're 17, the last thing you want to do is be crying for your mum, and I was. I literally was crying for my mum, and Trevor Nunn was holding my hand. And in fact, he still remembers it, because I actually saw him in New York like three days ago, and um, he brought it up again. And <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, so um, yeah, so good memories, and, and, I, and I'm really sort of, grateful for it but i wouldn't go back into the show ever again that's for sure i was happy to leave starlet express was a good stepping stone to you uh a lot of other good opportunities for you you worked with uh, quite a few people there yeah Yeah. it's not not bad to be 17 and in the good graces of trevor nunn i know i mean absolutely ridiculous who'd have thought it and then of course, I'm so lucky because I do get the role of Eponine, which changed my life. Um, and then um, then I get lucky again to go to New York because they said as much as we, I mean, the original London company, the talent was incredible of everybody in that, in that cast. And, you know, of course we all wanted to go to Broadway, but they said we really can't do it. And equity was so strong about it. Um, it was much more difficult in those days actually um and they said well the only person we're going to take is colin wilkinson who plays jean valjean and you know which is understandable and so we all were quite disappointed but we understood and they then they started rehearsals and everything and suddenly i get a phone call from cameron on a saturday morning before doing my matinee in london saying uh can you get to new york we need you there on monday um we haven't got an eponine they were already in rehearsal. So what happened was they did offer it to somebody originally and she took another job. Um, she took another job that actually only lasted a week in New York. So she definitely chose the wrong one, but I, I got lucky. <laughs> and then, you know, and after her, they just didn't see anyone they really wanted for the role. 
And so they managed to persuade Equity to let me come because they, there they were in rehearsals for a big show that they thought was going to be big on Broadway as well. And they didn't have an eponyme. So I got so lucky. So off I went. So uh, back in the time when uh, Les Mis was coming to Broadway and was the big hot show, similar to how history has repeated itself with with the Hamilton here uh, going there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, did you – and you were so young and this was your uh, debut in New York. Did you – uh, did you have any time to understand what was happening around you? What a what a global phenomenon this would become. No, I mean nobody really thought it. That there, there is an interview, a TV interview that exists of me uh, when I'm in London. I was asked how long do I think that Lainez will run, and I said at least thirty years, um, which turned out to be true. And Cameron calls me. Uh, I think he said, "What did he call me?" Uh, you know when you tell the future I can't think of the word anyway he thinks that I can I can see the future because a fortune teller yeah and he yeah that's it yeah um, so he put he often plays that you know when, when every time they have an anniversary they sort of show a little clip and there I am saying how long it's going to last um, but yeah but that was I mean, I did think it was wonderful and I thought it should run and run, but obviously I didn't really think 30 years, I don't think. But there you go. It's over 30 years in London now. And um, someone's trying to text me at the same time as me doing this interview. I wish they'd stop. (laughs) Um, So anyway, um, yeah, so and then... So then coming to New York and, you know, it it was such a big ticket. But also the other thing that sort of happened to me, which is odd for me because when you're a kid in you know London growing up and you think about Broadway it's like a dream you can't imagine you'd ever get to Broadway and then you know and we watch the Tony Awards every year in those in those days it was televised and it never occurred to me that I would be up for an award at all because in London I wasn't up for anything and I you know awards weren't really in my head and then suddenly I got to Broadway and everyone's going oh my god you're going to win the Tony and I was like really? I could be in that TV show that I watched. It was just like, you know, it just was for me. And so, you know, that whole year, you know, in New York and being on Broadway was just like a magical year. Amazing. Well, Francis, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your holiday to uh, spend some time with us on the phone. Your show, Francis Ruffell, lives in New York, is on Thursday, February 1st. Uh, (laughs) Live lives. (laughs) Live lives. It's got the parentheses around it, so I'm never sure how to pronounce it. And uh, it's at the Green Room 42. (laughs) We'll have links to everything in the show notes so that you can get your tickets. And thank you so much. And we'll talk to you when you get back to New York. Thank you. Thank you so much. The city goes to bed And I can live inside my head On my own Pretending he's beside me Without him, I feel his arms around me And when I lose my way, I close my eyes and he has found me Do it. 
Okay, in the review section, Michael, you got over to Playwrights Horizons to see Mankind, uh, written and directed by Robert O'Hara. So tell us about that. Yes, this is a Playwrights Horizons production and uh, written and directed by Robert O'Hara, who was uh, the playwright of a play a few seasons back that I very much enjoyed called Booty Candy. And that was a semi-autobiographical play about O'Hara growing up gay and black. He is openly gay and black. And uh, this one, however, Mankind is is a very different matter. It's set in uh, the future in some very uh, dystopian society in the future, fascist society, where aside from everything else, uh, women have become extinct. And therefore, men have developed the ability to become pregnant and thus propagate the species. Um, they don't really get into the mechanics of how it would happen that, that men could be able to uh, develop the ability to become pregnant. And I guess you're not supposed to think about that too much uh, just kind of take it on faith and, and maybe think of it as not a very realistic situation. Uh, I, I, one of the moments when I had uh, when I had trouble going with it was actually when uh, one of the characters uh, tr tr attempts to, well, uh, and does breastfeed a baby. And I thought, well, you know, there aren't any breasts. <laughs> So uh, I don't know. Uh, but of course, it's not supposed to be about that. This is just a very, very envelope pushing play. I, I think you could describe it as a satire. Um, it's it's achieved quite an a, a amount of controversy already because uh, it has many targets uh, Race is is not so much an element uh, or, or really hardly at all that I can remember of this play, whereas with uh, Booty Candy, that was very much what it was about. But Mankind is about gender roles, uh, fascism, organized religion, misogyny, uh, TV talk shows. These are all targets of the of the play uh, and O'Hara. Um, it's there. All, all of the topics are very interesting, but I think there's a scattershot quality to the play. It, it seems to be trying to do too much at once. Uh, that was my reaction, and I, and I gather some other people have agreed with me on that. Um, to, uh, to several interesting matters in the in the playbill for this production, Tim Sanford, the artistic director of Playwrights Horizons, asks: Is it possible to write a feminist play with no women in it, and that a woman? did not write. <laughs> um, so that's a question for, I, I guess, each individual to answer. This, this really was created entirely by men, this production. I checked, and even the production staff, uh, the designers, the design staff is all male. So, um, I mean, maybe that, maybe that's more interesting to have an entirely male perspective on this subject matter. Uh, uh, although the playwright is a gay male, so that of course makes a difference. I'm sure. Um, I also found, uh, this quote that, uh, that I'm sure many of you have heard before. This is a Gloria Steinem quote, uh, from uh, some years back, I guess, if men could get pregnant, abortion would be a sacrament. Um, uh, and I think that's a very, 
a very intelligent comment. But oddly enough, um, and this this is an, another example of perhaps the confusion of mankind in this world that we see depicted. Abortion is actually a crime pu- punishable by execution. Uh, so why that would be is is a little hard to imagine uh, in a, in a situation with with where men can become pregnant and uh, presumably men, uh, you know, who are who in our world try to control women's bodies. Uh, don't necessarily wouldn't have the nerve to try to control other men's bodies, but I don't know. I suppose it's just supposed to be uh, for propagation of the species, uh, and I guess that's what we're supposed to take away from that. Um, the basic plot here is that these two guys, uh, Jason and Mark, they're in a what is meant to be a casual relationship, but then one of them becomes pregnant, uh, Jason becomes pregnant, and they don't know what to do about it, and they, they do consider abortion, but as I said, that's a capital offense, so they, they don't do that. Um, they wind up having the child, and the child winds up being the first female child born in, I think they say, 50 years. So uh, because of this singular event, it gives rise to a religion built all around this this female child uh and especially uh when uh i well i i i may perhaps this is a spoiler but uh the child dies at, just in infancy uh and so that is what really really spurs this religion to to flourish and many many uh satirical points are made about Various religious practices. In a way, this uh, this play is similar to the Book of Mormon, although the tone is very different. Uh, in in pointing out how, um, I mean, we may look at, for example, the the tenets of the Mormon religion. The, those of us who are not Mormon and and find them laughable and ridiculous. Uh, for example, as they are laid out in in the Book of Mormon, the the musical, but. Uh, we have to. We should remember that the way, uh, you know, whether we're Roman Catholic or whatever, the tenets of our own religion and the uh, the origin stories uh, may seem equally ridiculous to people who don't share our religion. Uh, so this play does try to make a lot of points, but it, it gets uh, then it starts to make some of them over and over again and it and it gets a little boring uh many people i'm sure will be offended by the by the religious or or anti-religious if you would content of it i i personally was not but i i i can understand why there's a lot of envelope pushing in it and and that many people would react poorly to that the acting uh is uniformly excellent. I would say Jason is played by Bobby Moreno, Mark by Anson Mount, who that, that's interesting. Anson Mount was in Corpus Christi, Terrence McNally's play many years ago, which was also uh, very controversial because of how it dealt with religion. I would love to have a conversation with Anson Mount about his own feelings about religion, because he has not, as far as I know, he has not um, been on stage in New York um, 
for quite some time, and it seems that maybe this is a subject that that is very important to him. Um, I'm going to have to see if he's done any interviews on that. Uh, also in the uh, this production are David Ryan Smith, Ariel Shafir, Stephen Schnetzer, Aaron. G- Giola Albrecht, Joseph Fernandez Jr. Oh, I'm sorry. No, those last two are the uh, stage managers, so scratch that. Um, but, oh, Andre DeShields appears in the play. And at one point, he appears in a religious garb costume that seems to have caused many people to recall his appearance as in The Wiz in the original production of that show. Um, so if you see... Uh, if you go to see mankind, uh, let let me know if if that occurs to you also. Um, what else? Uh, there is uh, audience participation in this show if you are a, a man. Uh, at the end of Act One, the final scene of Act One uh, is a religious ceremony, and all the men are asked to stand and participate in this religious ceremony while the women just sit there and watch. Um, so that is something that you might react positively or negatively to depending on your uh, your feelings about audience participation. Uh, you don't have to really do much other than stand, but it's, uh, you know, you might not even want to do that much. So Mankind, um, quite controversial as, as are most, uh, I, I think, plays that deal with religion in a satirical way. And uh, it does have some very interesting thoughts about gender roles and patriarchy and and uh what the world would be like if there were no women in it um and i think it might be you might consider it worth seeing for all of that even if the construction of the play is rather scattershot and uh not as cohesive as it might have been so um, Mankind is playing over Playwrights Horizons uh, through January 28th. Uh, Jan Simpson did an interview with uh, Robert O'Hara, who mm. uh, wrote and directed Mankind uh, on the Stagecraft podcast. I'll link to that in the show notes. It was a great conversation, and uh, I encourage people to get over and listen to it. It's uh, It sounds like a <laughs> – when I hear people describe Mankind – I keep thinking to myself, this sounds too misogynistic and weird to yeah. be of be, to be of quality. But then they have got very qualified people involved with it, so maybe it's one of those things you have to experience. So, uh, oh, oh, let me hasten to say, you know, that the intent of it is to be is to be anti-misogynistic. Yeah. I, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, that, that, and I think, I think that comes through. I didn't mean to imply otherwise. No, no, it's, no. Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. Okay. No, I, I, I would, I would never expect you to say something along those lines. <laughs> and, uh, in addition to Tim Sanford's note in the program, there's also a, 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 a rather lengthy one by, by Robert O'Hara that, that, you, uh, that everyone will find interesting. I don't know if uh, you want to read it before or after you see the play. So, Jenna, you got over to the American Airlines Theater to see John Lithgow, Stories by Heart. So tell us about this, uh, this one-man show. 
So, yes, Stories by Heart, which was apparently produced uh, 10 years ago at Lincoln Center and directed by Jack O'Brien at the time, uh, which I missed. So this was a completely new experience for me. Uh, This show is a story about stories, as John Lithgow says, as the play begins. Uh, He has selected two short stories, A Haircut by Ring Lardner and Uncle Fred Flits By by P.G. Wodehouse. And Lithgow talks about his childhood and his family and then explains the significance of each of these stories to his childhood and his family. And then he acts them out for us, one in each act, uh, a haircut in Act One and Uncle Fred flits by in Act Two. So this is storytelling in its most literal form on a Broadway stage, which is great. Uh, Problem is, the heart of the show, the real heart of the show, is the stories surrounding the stories. Uh, The stories about Lithgow's family and his childhood, and then later on, his adulthood and his grown-up relationship with his parents, and what these stories meant to him in his, you know, the very complex relationships we all have with our families. And these stories were a part of that. And the stories themselves are, they're great. I mean, these are by master writers, but I really wanted to hear more about his childhood and his father ran a Shakespeare company and that's how Lithgow got interested in acting and received a classical education. And his father would tell these stories around the family, uh, around a fire in the family's household. And that has such a dramatic impact, hearing about the the emotional impact of storytelling and family and what it meant for this, you know, incredible award-winning actor. What did it mean to have someone, to have a whole family to sit around and tell stories and read to him? And what did that mean for his development and his growth? And we don't really get enough of that. And I think that's a major weakness of the script. Uh, Lithgow's pantomiming throughout the stories as he's retelling uh, a haircut and then Uncle Fred flits by, it's it's great, but it's somewhat distracting. These are, again, pieces, uh, strong pieces from master writers, adding action, uh, action, uh, pantomiming and accents, a very flat Midwestern accent for Act One, and then the very upper class English accent that we're all very familiar with from Lithgow's work in The Crown for Act Two. It sometimes feels like gilding the lily. there's uh, when we walk into the theater, there's this beautiful, comfy armchair sitting center stage. And I really wonder how what how the piece would be if instead of pantomiming and acting out the stories, we just had Lithgow sitting in that chair telling us the stories and that we would be like he was just sitting there around, you know, around the family fire, listening to someone tell us these master stories from master writers. Uh, it could, there's a huge difference in that style of storytelling, whether you're acting it out or just narrating it. And I wonder how, what the play would be like if it was staged that way. Uh, Daniel Sullivan directed the piece, and the direction, again, is uneven. When Lithgow was talking about his family, the energy is very natural and gentle. And then when we switch over to acting out these stories, it somewhat, again, it becomes a little distracting as, you know, the lighting begins changing. Kenneth Posner uh, handles the lighting and that nicely illustrates the stories. But is it really necessary? Do we need to have lighting changes and, you know, 
gobos? Do we need to have Lithgow pantomiming giving somebody a haircut as he's telling uh, uh, the story A Haircut by Ring Lardner? And I really don't know how necessary all of that is when, again, the heart of the story is in just him talking about his relationship with his family. So the play is, you know, it's great, good family entertainment. There is absolutely nothing that parents would find problematic for bringing their kids. Maybe, you know, 10 and up would be ideal. Uh, It's a nice evening out. There is nothing at all offensive or bothersome about it, but it's also not the most thought provoking evening. And it really could be, I think, if he focused more on the impact these stories had on him and his family. Perhaps if the stories themselves were edited down a little bit so that they didn't require a full act to act out, if they were trimmed slightly and summarized, and obviously editing Wodehouse or Lardner would be a tricky work, but if it made more time for Lithgow to talk about his own, the impact these stories had on him and on his family, that's the real drama of this play, and that ha- that's the meat of this piece, and I would really love to see more of that. So I wouldn't know how to balance out editing down the work of two you know, master writers to make more time for Lithgow to talk about what their work meant to him, but I would kind of like to see them try, because this is a lovely, a nice, gentle evening at the theater, but I think it could have a greater dramatic impact. Okay. So uh, that's Sean Lithgow, Stories by Heart, over at the American Airlines Theater on 42nd Street. Uh, Michael and I have not seen it yet. Peter will be back next week to talk about it. Uh, So I think the three of us will add on to what you have already said, Jenna. I look forward to hearing your thoughts and tell me if you think I'm wrong. All right. Uh, Michael. Now, hmm. uh, we're, we're not going to review the Min Theater Company's production of Hindle Wakes, but we just wanted to kind of uh, talk about it and raise the awareness of it. So uh, tell us about this production. Oh, well, we're not going to review it now only because it hasn't opened yet, but I, I, it, it's a wonderful production of a really, really fascinating play, which maybe we can talk about next week. But I wanted to mention it because I – had, as it turned out, a very minty week. Um, I saw Hindle Wakes at the Mint Theatre Company and on on uh, Friday the 12th, and then the previous night, on Thursday the 11th, I went to something called the Minty Awards on Staten Island. Uh, and that is an, uh, an awards that have, awards that have been established to honor Catholic high school theater on Staten Island, which as when I I mentioned this earlier, James said, that's pretty specific. And it's true. uh, But you would you might be surprised at how much Catholic high school theater there is on Staten Island. This this has been true since I was doing Catholic high school shows on Staten Island. And it and it remains the case. It's a very vibrant endeavor there uh see i i think all of the schools have some sort of program and and some of them are, are really very very professional uh very well done and and tremendous amounts of talent there um so these awards uh first of all they're called the minty awards because they were established uh and the executive director is a, a fellow named mike pinto and so he uh I guess he had a production company that 
he named Minto, putting together the, uh, the, his two names like that. And then he had the idea for these awards, and that's why they're called Minty. Uh, uh, so I finally found that out. <laughs> on Thursday, that was that was one reason I was glad I went. Um, but I had an amazing time because I got to spend time with some people that I it it was really extraordinary for me. People that I started doing shows with literally forty five years ago, and in most cases ha- have not seen in decades. Uh, some of them I have, but there, there were other people that I that I have not seen in about in over 40 years. And th- it was really wonderful to reconnect with them. Uh, and the main reason I went, uh, this was my first Minty Awards. They've been doing them for a few years, but I went because one of the honorees was Frank Lombardi, who uh, was one of the major creators and writers of the beloved TV sitcom The Nanny with Fran Drescher and he is a friend of mine we uh, went to we did some shows together in high school we were uh, actually I think we only did one high school show together and that was South Pacific uh, at St. John Villa Academy what would happen on on Staten Island uh, and still does happen is that there are some all boys schools and all girls schools and they uh they import uh, members of the opposite sex from from those from the male or you know or the or the the the, the women's schools to be in each other's shows. Um, who knows? Maybe that may not continue <laughs> so much in the future with uh, with new concepts of of gender and uh, transgender and things like that. But we'll see. For the time being, they're still doing it that way. Um, so Frank and I did South Pacific but at St. John Villa Academy, but then we were also uh, at Wagner College together for a few years and, and we're in a, a few shows there. So he received the Distinguished Alumni Award and it was well-deserved. He, I would say, is one of the most successful people to come out of Catholic High School Theater on Staten Island. Uh, but also uh, one of the other people present was a previous honoree, Betsy Jocelyn, who went on to be to appear as Louisa in the Fantastics Off-Broadway and then was on Broadway in Sweeney Todd, um, first in the ensemble, then as Joanna. And she was in the original production of Sunny in the Park with George. And then she was the lead in A Doll's Life. So uh, there really were a lot of people there that I wanted to see, and it was a lovely evening, and I'm delighted that I attended. All right, so uh, that's the Minty Awards. I found a uh, a website that uh, has a bunch of information about the about the organization, plus the 2018 awards that Michael just talked about. Uh, so if you want to follow up more information about that, go over to the Broadway Radio uh, show page, and you'll be linked to it right there. All right. So uh, before we wrap up for today, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to iTunes View. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in iTunes. You can listen to us in many ways. One of the ways is iHeartRadio plays us, TuneIn plays us. We can find us on Apple Podcasts. You can find us on Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts. Contact information for Jenna, for Michael, and for me can be found at BroadwayRadio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So let's get in Peter's trivia answer here. So last week I asked, 
In her first book musical on Broadway, she played two distinctly different characters. In her last book musical on Broadway, she played four distinctly different characters. Who is she, the name of the two shows, and the name of the six characters in search of an answer. And the answer was Barbara Harris, who was in On a Clear Day You Can See Forever, where she played both Daisy Gamble and Melinda Wells. And in The Apple Tree, she played Eve, Barbara, Ella and Passionella. So Carrie Winslow was the first to get it, followed by Jeremy Scott Blaustein, Deb Popple, and Reed Loveland. Now, here's the next one, which is quite a honey, I'll tell you, because it's something I just ran into uh, a few days ago accidentally. So let's see if you can run into it purposely. One of the most famous shows to have an exclamation point after its title also had a title song that sported an exclamation point after its title. Later, though, the same name of that song showed up in another musical, but this time with different punctuation at the end. What's the name of the song, the two shows, and while you're at it, tell me the different punctuation, too. If you have an answer to Peter's question, please uh, email us at TriviaBroadwayRadio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Jenna Tessa Fox and Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. I say yeah, yeah. Mm, that's what I say. I say yeah, yeah. Toi qui sans cesse me fais des promesses que tu ne tiens pas. Toi qui inventais des phrases m'enchantées pour te moquer de moi. Ne souris pas, prends garde à toi. Crois-moi la prochaine fois. Attends, yeah, 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 ça pourrait changer. Oh, pretty baby, I never knew such a thrill. It's hard to tell you because I'm driving like steel. Oh, pretty baby, I want you off of my own. I think I'm ready. Leave those others alone No need to ask me If everything is okay I got my answer The only thing I can say I say yeah, yeah mm, That's what I say I say yeah, yeah Yeah, 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 ça pourrait changer. Yeah, yeah.